Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. My name is Kate, and this week we are joined with the wonderful Tom Hart, and he's going to explain some of his work with paleoethnobiology. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. This is this is exciting to talk about plants. <laughs> it is. It's always great chatting with people about plants, I think. Um, so could you really briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah. So my name is, is Tom Hart. Um, I'm a research fellow with uh, the Center for Archaeological and Tropical Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And sort of corollary to that, I also um, am the director of, very, it's a very fancy title, the director of paleoethnobotanical research for the Program for Belize Archaeological Project which is a project down in Belize uh, where we investigate uh, the ancient Maya. And so, yeah, and so that's, 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 that's what I do um, is, is researching ancient plant use. Wonderful. And kind of going off of that, um, could you explain a little bit more what exactly the work you do with plants is and what you do and how you understand? I guess it's, this is an interesting question for you working in paleoethnobotany, um, because usually I'll ask people, well, what do you do and what do the plants do? <laughs> and I'm not sure if that makes sense in your context or if you could talk a bit more about your work in particular. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I'm a, you know, an archaeologist um, who, who studies uh, how plants are being used in the past. So there are um, a lot of different types of subfields within archaeology. And so well, mine is, is is recovering ancient plant remains. And so they can be sort of visible to the naked eye or they can be invisible to the naked eye. If anybody's ever had allergies, then you've, you've dealt with invisible pollen, invisible plant remains. So, so my research um, really is reconstructing, taking these botanical remains and reconstructing um, what people were eating, perhaps what they were using the plants for, or even the environment. Uh, there's, there's a lot of discussion about climate change going on. And one of the ways in which we know how the environment, what the environment looked like in the past was by looking at things like pollen um, from you know, a thousand years ago and plus to see what the landscape looked like. Awesome. I, ha I have to ask because I also enjoy doing art. Um, do you work much with textiles or that type of plant matter? Or is that kind of a different area? Um, there are textile archeologists. Um, it, it can come up. So a good example of this would be looking at the origins of agriculture for a particular type of fiber. So when does flax um, make an appearance? And so uh, archaeologists and paleoethnobotanists uh, have you know, found early evidence for flax, domesticate, flax domestication in the Middle East alongside your, your wheat and your barley and that sort of stuff. So it does come up. Um, so there is overlap between textile archaeologists and paleoethnobotanists. Cool. That was going to be one of my summer goals. Although now that I've learned more about the process, it'll be a late summer, early fall <laughs> goal of maybe harvesting some stinging nettle and trying to make fabric out of it. But yeah. that, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> it's a it's a challenge. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. Uh, I mean, it's our, so paleoethnobotanists like there's big debates about where do some of these crops first come from. So is cotton um, cotton is a tricky one because cotton turns out was independently domesticated a couple times. So one's in South Asia, um, and then again uh, in in the Maya world and the Yucatan things like that. And so flax is another one. So where 
where are these plants being domesticated and what is their relationship to the early uh, people who used them? So when you take a project, I guess, are you looking primarily at a certain geographic region or a certain dig site? Um, or are you looking for a particular plant or a particular type of pollen? Like, how do you approach that type of process? Um, yeah, so I, I typically have um, a thematic focus where I, I tend to look at the relationship between plants and people um, and the origins of social complexity or the origins of complex societies and then sort of in the collapse of complex societies. And so I, I, um, I sort of work in two parts of the world. I work in the Middle East where I did my dissertation work in Syria in 2010, looking at the origins of social complexity and the food that they were growing. Um, and then now we've sort of continued our work, shifted it over towards Iraqi Kurdistan. And then in, in Central America, I work with, in Central America, I work in Belize, where we're looking at the origins and the collapse of the Maya civilization and the relationship uh, to foods. Um, and because one of the things is that everybody thinks that droughts were, were keyed in, just in, in the unraveling of the Maya civilization. But it turns out droughts might have also been an important factor in their foundation. And then, in fact, the early Maya might have had to change their agricultural and horticultural strategies to adapt to, to these droughts. And then all of a sudden, things start to take off. So those are the types of questions uh, I, I tend to look at. That's fascinating, um, especially sometimes I think in like the broader kind of collection of cultural attitudes of the day, we kind of think of things historically as more kind of static. And, you know, it's interesting that there might be kind of this like cyclical nature that an environmental stressor actually ended up prompting like a, a positive thing for like a civilizational growth, while also possibly ending up being an undoing of it as well. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's a good point. And that's one of the ones we talk about a lot in our archaeology and anthropology classes. Um, we always come at it from, particularly in the collapse of civilizations class, we oftentimes project our current day worries onto our interpretations of the past. When, when you look at something like the origins of agriculture in the Middle East, um, the very, very earliest during the, what's called the Natufian period, right before agriculture begins, you actually, once again, see a drought circumstance. And so one half the population goes back to hunting and gathering. The other half decides to double down. And they're the ones that end up becoming uh, agriculturalists. So yeah, it is interesting to sort of think about how those things work. Is there something that has been especially surprising in some of your current work or that you weren't expecting to find? Well, um, I mean, I I think we we tend to have to really keep an open mind when we're looking at um, the data that are coming out. Um, there's a whole field of research um, that's emerging dealing with fermentation. And so we, uh, we have sort of this perspective about alcohol and fermentation, that it's negative and, and those sorts of things. It's starting to look like, in, you know, early on in the Middle East, that fermentation has been with us since the very beginning. Um, and so archaeologists and archaeobotanists, which is another term for paleoethnobotany, what we do is we find these microscopic plant remains little starches, like the starches that you have in, you know, everybody tells you that starches are bad. Well, these starches end up on your teeth, they end up in the bowls, they end up in the ground, and then you can identify uh, what people were cooking or eating. And so we're starting to see um, evidence of fermented starches really early on, you know, 11,000 years ago, things like that, almost at the time of agriculture. And so, you know, it, that's the thing that surprises them, that we always have to Put our beliefs sort of on pause because we never know exactly what's going to come out. 
And it might not necessarily be beer, right? It could, there are many types of fermentation. So once again, we have to keep our, our options open. that the plant network is really interested in as kind of a collective um, is education. And so one of the things that kind of brought our hodgepodge network together was an interest since many of us are academics. Um, although some of us are also like, you know, K through 12 teachers or, you know, working in other types of educational, um, educational contexts. Do you consider yourself a teacher or a student or both? And how do you see the benefits of education or how education can best be done when we're working with plants? Um, I mean, I consider myself an educator to be sure. I love teaching. Um, my students, I mean, we have a great time. Uh, and I think it's really critical. It, so I'm always I'm always trying to share what knowledge I have and learn from other people as well. So there's sort of a couple examples. Um, so one of them is in the classroom setting where students are rediscovering their botanical connections to the past, the botanical connections to their cultures. So when we talk about Mesoamerica and we talk about the uh, the ancient Aztec and the others and their close relationship with chocolate, I, I had at least one student who, um, when we were talking about the sacred rituals of chocolate and how it's made that all of a sudden she she started she understood why her grandmother would do these sacred chocolate rituals along the lake in the Mexico City area and because she was of Nahuatl descent and so she could trace her ancestry back to the Aztec um, and so it's that connection that's really important but but in large it, it it's crazy because we have such a people have such a static view of plants they just sort of see them as background stuff when when you get education and you start walking down the street and you're pointing out all of these different plants and their histories and where they're coming from, it opens up this whole world of, of it's it's not just this sort of nature that's beyond that's behind us, right? It's that plant over there was introduced in the 1800s because X, Y, and Z, and it comes from this route and it means this. And so when you start seeing that, then it sort of changes your whole world around you. You start stories start emerging. Um, even going to the grocery store. When we go to the grocery store. We go to the produce section, see, you know, you got your tomatoes, you got your, you know, I got all your fruits and vegetables there. And we think of them as kind of, you know, they're like the, the plastic fruit on a, on a table, but they're not, they're living creatures. You can go home and you can cut off the end of a lettuce, put it in a, a thing with water and it'll sprout some roots. You can go and you can plant that apple, that apple seed, and it'll start to grow. And so we, we have this very static view of, of plants around us. And that once we start to actually see them and, and, understand their story and understand that we're part of their story, um, I think it'll really help change some people's perspectives and, and really open their eyes to what's going on. Um, and the excitement of it, it's really fascinating. Yes, one question I have for you, and this is something that has come up in other interviews with a range of people. So people working in literary studies with plants, people working in philosophy with plants. And so I'm just really curious to hear from your perspective, do you think that plants have agency or are there glimpses of plant agency that you see in the human plant interactions that you study? Well, that, uh, that's also a really good question. And I'll, 
I'll be honest, I'm not as up to date on my anthropological theory as I should, that there's a whole branch um, within anthropology, particularly with cultural anthropologists looking at the forest as agency and, and really moving beyond that um, to that to that extent. But I I would definitely argue that, particularly when it comes to questions about domestication, so the selective of traits for plants, that you know, we may have chosen certain plants for, for certain domestication events, but when you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, those plants are also doing an amazing job at surviving because all of a sudden now wheat and barley and, and corn and um, sorghum and all these other plants that are, that are staples are amazingly successful when they might not have been otherwise, they might've just been sort of a, a little bit different in their wild state. Um, so I certainly think that there's a, a bit of a, um, a relationship. I don't. I don't know about agency to some extent. I. There are many people that would argue that they are, and I. And I know that there are um, studies out there that talk about chemical signatures of plants being released uh, when something happens to a tree. You know that sort of stuff. And the signal goes out, and um, many religious belief systems. You know, talking about relationships with plants and humans. Um, that that's a little bit harder for me to detect archaeologically, but. Um, I certainly, I certainly see them as active. That's interesting. In at least in, in my experience with philosophy, it's also a really kind of difficult thing to make sense of. It kind of depends on what your paradigm is that you're coming at it from, because some people will admit certain capacities or capabilities to plants and others it just is a non-starter for them and so it's it's really an interesting time to be in, involved with critical plant studies I think because people are really experimenting with <laughs> different ideas and mixing different approaches together to see um what shakes out so yeah no I I totally agree I mean it's I, I just keep thinking about um you know the archaeological and the relationship between plants and, and sort of religion um, in all of these different societies and how big of a role it plays and depending upon the society that you look at. Um, I mean, in the world that I work with, with the Maya, I mean, they're, you know, they're one of their main gods is a maize god, um, which is, which is amazing. And, and so in that case, you know, that god very much has agency, um, is very active. Another area that's of interest of people in the network is the idea of respect, although it, it doesn't always show up in everyone's project the same way, um, but it's a question I like to ask people on the podcast. Um, what is res What does it mean to have respect for plants, um, in your opinion, either through your work or more generally speaking, um, and how is it embodied? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, you know, and this is, this is particularly tricky for me because I'm essentially dealing with dead plant remains, right? So, so I, you know, I'm looking at charred material remains. I'm looking at the, these microscopic silica crystals that are formed inside of the plant tissues that'll survive for millions of years. And I mean, I, I guess I guess my question is always like, what do people mean by respect for plants? Um, I I have tremendous respect for plants because I, I see the resiliency that they have. Um, and so, uh, looking at looking at how they interact, 
how they interact with each other, how they interact with herbivores, how they interact with uh, pollinators. Um, all of that stuff is amazing to me. I mean, th they can survive in the craziest places, um, in the most unlikely places. And so that I've, in that sense, I've, I have a tremendous respect for them, even if the ones in my house don't necessarily work out the way that I'd hope they would. Um, but uh, I'll use them as a barometer for my respect for plants, please. Um, yeah, I think what I don't honestly don't know. It depends. I guess my question is what what are people's opinions on what do they mean by respect for plants? Humans have been intimately tied to nature. We're we're a part of nature, and so I mean, since you know, since you know, four million years ago, however many million years ago in Africa, um, our earliest Australopithecine ancestors, we've been dealing with plants, and and so I, I certainly there's a certainly it has to be a healthy respect for plants especially depending on where you live. And some plants fight back, I'll, I'll tell you that much, especially when you go into certain <laughs> jungle environments, every plant seems to have a spike on it or something like that. And no, it'll, you may not have respect for it, but you'll learn it pretty quickly when you step on an escoba palm or something like that. So. <laughs>
But once I started um, trying to grow corn, thanks to the pandemic, because there wasn't any archaeological research happening anywhere outside of wherever it was that you lived, I started trying to grow things and I was terrible at it, but I was fascinated by corn. How is your um, local environment for corn growing, have you found? It's fine. I mean, it's, you know, I live in the mid-Atlantic, so I was living in, in Pennsylvania. And so the corn, the corn is, the corn environment's really good, especially for the particular breeds of corn that they have, that they had developed um, these heirloom varieties that were developed in the 1800s that were specific for this part of Pennsylvania. And so they worked, they worked nicely, assuming that I took care of them, or I kept away all of the invasive bugs, which is another part of the story, right? The introduction of invasive species. Yes, I'm from Indiana. And so growing up, it was always corn and soybeans. Yeah, that's it. Yep. That's that's what it is in Belize, too. You go down there to do archaeology, half the fields are corn and the other half are soybeans and the other half are rice. So if you had a plant that you think you interact with most or is most representative of your community, would that also be corn or would it be another plant? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that would be corn. Corn is just sort of something that I'm fascinated by. Um, the plants I interact with the most are my house plants. And, and those are, um, and those are all important to me because they were given to me by, by somebody. Um, or there were ones I picked up along the way. And so they've traveled with me. So they have that, that memory um, and those emotional connections to those plants that, that, that I keep around the house. Um, and then ones that I identify with, that's an interesting question because it's really fascinating because now I've noticed that. And I don't know what the, I don't know if we have a term for it yet, but it's like a, it's like, botanical cultural identity or something like that, where, where, where groups of people, and this is what they've been doing, this is what they were doing with um, the Plant Humanities Institute and looking at histories of plants, um, where, where people are really owning up to a plant that, or, or a suite of plants that are associated with a specific, specific cultural practice or a specific cultural group. And particularly in immigrant communities where they don't have plants that are growing that they would have, that they are near and dear to them. Um, an example of this is um, a good colleague of mine, a good colleague and friend of mine. Um, she's an Andean archaeologist from Bolivia. And so we just started during the pandemic, started growing crops that were important to her in Bolivia. And, and so, um, you know, these were, she can't get them at the grocery store. You can't get choclo, you can't get quinoa, you can't get any of these sorts of things that you'd find in South America. But to her, those are the plants that she identifies with because those are the plants that she had growing up. And those are the plants that she, the smell of the, this, of the, the herbs and the, 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 the taste of the corn, the taste of the chilies, um, to grow those for her um, was so meaningful and so impactful. And so it, it's really fascinating to me because we're really starting to see this, particularly with heirloom seed companies. We're starting to see heirloom seed companies really specialize in this. Whereas before there were always sort of these are unique varieties of plants that you might like. And now it's like, oh, okay, you, you just recently moved from Ukraine. You don't have the plants that you usually have in your backyard. Here they are. And this is a chance for you to connect, a chance for you to heal, a chance for you to maintain some sense of cultural identity. Um, but for me, you know, I'm, I'm one of these 
sort of standard boring white Americans whose, you know, whose family came from Northern and Western Europe. And so I think the closest thing for me um, is a place called the Landis Valley uh, Farm and Museum in Lancaster. And so they, it's a, a museum that's devoted to uh, understanding German immigrants. And so they have all of these plants and things like that and farming techniques that, that the German immigrants I'm engaged in. And so it's a pretty cool little museum. So that's about as close as I can get to. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm sure since you're up in this area, I'm, I recently moved from Philly to the Shenandoah Valley. Um, and one seed company based in Philly called True Love Seeds. Yeah, that's is, the one, yeah. Yeah, they're amazing. And I ran into someone randomly in the Shenandoah Valley and was like, I'm buying seed from True Love Seeds this year. And they have like culturally significant seeds. And mm -hmm. she's from South California, Southern California. And she found seeds through them that like she hasn't found since she's moved to the Shenandoah Valley because they aren't here. And so she was like, oh, finally, like we eat this all the time. And it's like, it's just really cool when you're, when you see companies like that, like connect people with those culturally significant plants. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think they're really onto something. Um, there's another a nonprofit out of uh, Tucson, the Native Seed Search folks. And so they're always working with um, getting uh, indigenous crops and indigenous plants out to indigenous peoples as a way to give them agency over their diet and cuisine instead of having to rely upon the government subsidized foods that they were that they were given on reservations and the like. Um, and so I think it's, I, I'm really excited about this movement that's happening, um, connecting people with their botanical past, um, helping them understand that and make that connection. I think it's very meaningful for people. And for me as an archaeobotanist, as a paleontobotanist, it's exciting to see that because you see the stories. How is it that, you know, tomato, a plant that was, you know, a new world plant ends up as such a staple of Italian cuisine, you know, so it's, 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 it's pretty wild. Yeah, one of the chapters of my dissertation is on tomato plants. So, oh, <laughs> so there in, you go. I'm in philosophy, but my advisor was very kind and let me do this type of like a study experimental philosophy thing. And so, yeah, the tomato story is wild. I keep an eye out for keep an eye out for stuff coming out of South America. It's becoming, in terms of origins of agriculture, it's becoming more and more apparent that particularly the Brazilian rainforest region, um, which is a whole other side story about how we have this notion of the Brazilian rainforest as being this sort of pristine environment. And it's really not. The, the Brazilian rainforest, the archaeological research is showing that the Brazilian rainforest very much is shaped by um, indigenous peoples who've been living there for quite some time. Um, even though we, the image of it, right, is this sort of untouched, seldom touched, Forest, it's really not. And, and so, I mean, peppers, uh, you know, chili peppers are coming out of there. Peanuts are coming out of Brazil. The origins of um, uh, Theobroma cacao, the, the, you know, the tree that makes, uh, the tree you make chocolate out of is coming out of, it's coming out of, like, it really is becoming one of these major centers of domestication. Awesome. I look forward to hearing more about it as it continues to come out. Um, if people want to follow your work, what are some of the best sources for them to kind of be looking at 
either current projects or do you have a few future projects that you're excited about? Um, yeah, so I mean, I I sort of have my professional stuff on LinkedIn and academia.edu or the more professional ones where you can see the publications. Um, Tom, the archaeobotanist, is on Instagram, so you can follow my more adventures. That's the more uh, that that's the the more day to day types of things um, that that are going on. Um, and then in terms of projects, yeah, we're I mean we've been busy. I have sort of two hats. My my uh, Mesopotamian hat. I've been working with some folks over there looking at the origins of uh, pastoralism. So when does that emerge? So we've been, I'm excited about that work in northern uh, Iraq. And then my other hat in Belize looking at the Maya world. So the projects that are sort of ongoing and under and are underway looking at the origins of uh, the Maya and their and their subsistence strategies. And then we've just finished up this past summer um, a marketplace project where craziest thing is, is that um, when it comes to economic theories, the majority of modern economic theories are dependent upon, are based on uh, capitalistic societies. So you make these economic theories based off of capitalist societies, which is crazy if you're going to make a lot of assumptions about how humans work, if you're not looking at pre-capitalistic societies. So we, the summer we undertook uh, an ambitious project where we looked, trying to look for marketplaces uh, in Northwest Belize and the Maya world and trying to figure out what they were trading and that sort of stuff. So that, that's, that's a project that we're working on that I'm pretty excited about. Around 900 AD, it's called the late class period. That's so exciting. One of my favorite parts of a climate philosophy class I took was the intersection between uh, economies and economics and envisioning kind of alternatives to what we assume just is, you know. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's bonkers. I, I tell my introduction to archaeology students, if they, if you, you know, um, wanted to revolutionize economic theory, go out and learn how to read cuneiform tablets and then go and and look at all of these transactions that people were making um, and writing down during the Uruk period or and later on during the early dynastic period and things like that in Mesopotamia. We've got records of them, but we haven't applied, we haven't had that special person to, to look at that um, or from our archaeological perspective. There are economic anthropologists who look at all of these things um, in modern societies try to do it that way, but talking more archaeologically. You know, this is an exciting time to be studying plants and there's a lot of interesting overlap. And I mean, I really I really think that, um, yeah, just, just keep an eye out for what's going on because uh, there's, there's cool stuff coming out that I think will change your perspective on how you see plants, particularly when, in, in our relationship and particularly when it comes to climate change and what we think about, what we mean by nature. I didn't start out liking plants. This was a this was a college um, transition. So the, the story behind that was, <clears throat> I remember in high school, their guidance counselor said, you're going to have an adult moment in college where you have to like make tough decisions about what you want to do in life. Oh, okay. And all my life, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I went to marine biology camp, did all these things that you're supposed to do. And I was doing it at my college and got until my sophomore year where I had to take organic chemistry. And so, you know, I have massive, when we talk about respect, I got respect for people who can do mathematics and chemistry because that orgo class was rough. 
And so um, I had this like crisis point in college and I was like, what am I going to do? I thought I was going to be marine biology. Professor says to me, why do something you can only, you only kind of enjoy and you're only kind of good at when you can do something you're really good at and really enjoy. And so I took a class on landscape archaeology, blew my mind because all of a sudden I could, I could, I could do studying biology um, with history and cultures, which I had always kind of liked, but never really thought about. And so, hey, you're, you're telling me that I can, you can study you know, plants, you can study animals from hundreds, from thousands of years ago. What? And so I guess the moral of that story is, is that in, in college, you may think you know what you're going to go into and you end up somewhere totally different. Um, and that's how I ended up really liking plants. Definitely. That's, that's a great, uh, that's a great story of wisdom. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a hard one too. I mean, I was, I was, I was in it to win it to be biology, marine biology, but all of a sudden I was able to write papers and get good grades and not have to spend every weekend of my life studying for an exam that was a month away. Yeah. Um, I remember growing up, there were always plants around, but I would get really bad hives. Uh, <laughs> so I took a break from plants for a really long time because my mom or her family always worked in like the garden. And, yeah. and I was, I was, when I was younger, I just, brush a plant and there would be hives everywhere oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just always bad but in my master's program I got a part-time job for the city of Fort Collins like um botanical team and I was just like fell back in love with it and had totally blacked out all <laughs> those years getting horrendous hives <laughs> was, it a, was it a particular plant or was it just all the plants the entire plant oh, kingdom taking care of plants every day there was just something because mm. Fort Collins was pretty dry and mm -hmm. it had a ton of planters. And so I would take care in the like downtown mm -hmm. corridor of the planters and doing something every day to take care of the plants just shifts your perspective so much. It's strange. I, yeah, I had seen, um, I remember, I wish I could remember the artist who did this, um, but thinking about perspective on plants, he had set out to was either photograph, must have been photograph a tree every single day for 365 days. And, and him describing it was very interesting because he developed this relationship with this plant, um, this tree, as, as every day he went out there to check on it and take a picture of it. And he started to know its quirks. It started to know the changes of it. And, and, it, and since it was in a temperate environment, which is, is kind of important to say, because <laughs> the you know the the leaves fell and all that sort of stuff but that was, developing that relationship was interesting with plants for me my relationship is with poison ivy i see it i break out and it makes it even worse if you're on an archaeological dig if you're working for somewhere that has poison ivy and then you go on a dig in europe um and you have poison ivy but you don't know how to translate the word poison ivy and they don't have poison ivy over there so it just looks like you have boils they just look like you're a diseased person traveling around Eastern Europe. And, you know, so it trying to explain poison ivy you know, to a part of the world that doesn't have poison ivy is a challenge. I can't imagine. <laughs> oh, my. It, let me tell you, I got a lot of dirty looks and a lot of people doing the sign of the cross. So. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your expertise and your experience with plants with us. Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to talk plants all the time and I can be happy to share all sorts of trivia about the origins of plants. (laughs) Amaze your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Next time we have you on, I think it should be a mixture of updates in the world of... um, Paleo ethnobotany and fun plant trivia for trivia night prep. I've got plenty of plant trivia for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Tom's work, we'll provide links in the show notes. And if you're interested in networking with plants, please check us out at networking withplants.org or email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until then, think about your cultural foods and go develop a relationship with the plant. (laughs) Take care. Music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.